Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13 through verse 20. Hear now God's Word. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. The Bible regularly sets before us stark choices. Either this or that. Jesus does this in our text today in Matthew 7, distinguishing between the narrow and the wide gates and ways, between true and false prophets, between good and bad fruit. These are the differences, he says, between blessings and curses, between life and death. As a pastor and shepherd of my flock, as well as being aware of the trends in many other flocks, I have a growing concern for many young people who are being cheated by philosophy and who are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There's a failure to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and for them to get caught up in the philosophical trends and fads of our culture. The broad gate and the broad way can be very alluring. According to Jesus These messengers are ravenous wolves, but they are also adept at hiding in plain sight under a cloak of sheep's clothing. Unsuspecting and overconfident lambs fall easy easy prey to these ravenous wolves. Their sensitive, young, bleeding hearts make them very vulnerable. These three warnings of Jesus come at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, and they should not be passed over lightly. His first warning is to make sure, to make absolutely certain that you enter through the right gate. Be careful, he says, because it is quite narrow. There are a whole bunch of other people, including many of your friends, who are going through another gate, which is wide and easy. And Jesus says, in effect, don't just go with the flow. We might say, quote, the wide gate is trending right now on Twitter. Hashtag road to destruction. The second warning comes because there are many who will contradict Jesus and tell you that the narrow gate is actually way too narrow. And they'll lure you in with persuasive words. The best false prophets are very good salesmen. 
Satan is an angel of light. The false prophets speak false philosophies while claiming to be enlightened. Ravenous wolves never show you their teeth or their claws. This leads to the third warning of Jesus, which is to look at the fruit of the particular teaching or philosophy of those who are speaking. You should pay attention to their personal lives. And you should look, most importantly, at the results of their teaching. In this series of sermons on the warning to not be cheated by philosophy, I believe this is the ninth sermon in this series, and um, Lord willing, we'll have one more. This is either the eighth or the ninth, I can't remember. I briefly dealt with three key philosophies that have, that have had and are having a profound effect on our culture. They are bearing fruit. Charles Darwin murdered God and thereby eliminated the Creator and the Judge, but also in doing so, he eliminated all purpose, all planning. This just is. This is an accident. And he believed that. He didn't believe there was a purpose. He didn't believe there was a plan. Sigmund Freud, while happy about Darwin's deed, discovered that Darwin's philosophy left humanity with a boatload of guilt due to the conflict, he thought, between our inherited biological animal instincts and the taboos presented and established by society. That's why we're all messed up. And Karl Marx, also happy with Darwin's elimination of God, reduced the entire driving force of society to the material world of economics. The problem, he said, that people were just divided between the haves and the have-nots. And in the wake of the division, result, uh, excuse me, the disastrous results of these ideas, the children of these fathers have adapted their ideas to give us new versions, to try to deal with some of these complications. <clears throat> the notion that evolution is actually, it turns out, very progressive and headed toward a superior man in society. Out of thin air, they supplied Darwin's deficit of plan and purpose. Call us progressives, please. Freud Freud's claim that social repression is the cause of our feelings of guilt and that religion is the chief oppressor, he, uh, which hinders our self-awareness, and therefore they have given us a culture that demands that we be set free from this, that we have total sexual liberty, and more importantly, complete approval from you. Expanding on Marx's economic class division, the new cultural Marxism has now given us the broader divisions of oppressors and oppressed. Identity politics based on class, race, sex, and gender, among other things, any other groups that we might be able to identify. And finally, with God and religion now out of the way, each person is now free at last to be their own God. Everyone, of course, has their own truth. Your body is but a biological machine to do with as you please. 
or to be manipulated by the elite and the enlightened. These false prophets and their philosophies have provided a broad gate to the broad way, which is destruction. The fruit of these false philosophies is all around us, and by their fruits you will know them. Just as one example, the abortion mills are processing processing much of the rotten fruit, but there is much more than that. Now, part of the sheep's clothing that is used by these wolves is the hijacking of words, deceptive words. For example, I can remember even in my college days hearing theologians speak of the resurrection. But when asked about the resurrection, oh no, they didn't mean the bodily resurrection of Jesus. What they meant when they said resurrection was that the influence of Jesus lives on. We've been told that love wins. If, by love, you mean approval of whatever I want to do, that's how you would love me, is just approve of me. Tell me that no matter what I do, it's good. That's love. And they love freedom and choice, if that means that they're free to choose to kill an unborn child. And now we hear a lot about social justice. Who here is not for justice? Love, freedom, choice. Who doesn't think that a black life matters? Well, you better make sure you know which definition of justice is being used before you sign up for this team. This morning, I want to speak to you about justice versus justice. Don't make the fatal mistake of assuming that the current call for social justice is the same thing as biblical justice. Part of the deception of false philosophy is to use familiar words, but to change their meaning. So let's talk about the narrow gate and the narrow way first. What does the Bible say? What is biblical justice? God is just, and we are made in His image, and therefore we long for justice. C.S. Lewis observed, justice means much more than the sort of thing that goes on in law courts. It is the old name for everything we should now call fairness. It includes honesty, give and take, truthfulness, keeping promises, and all that side of life. The demands of justice press us continually. We're called upon to render justice day in and day out. Husbands and wives, parents and children, friends with friends, neighbors with neighbors, employers with employees. These groups and the group and this and that group, elders, judges, juries. Everyone wants justice while few are really equipped to render it. Nevertheless, doing justice is essential to all of our relationships within our families, churches, schools, business, and in society. We want justice for ourselves, well, tempered with mercy, of course, but we're often careless with dispensing it to others. 
Our interest in justice is deep because God is just, because we're created in His image, because we desire to be treated justly, and because we are obligated to treat others justly. This built-in sense of justice drives us back to its source. Again, C.S. Lewis, before he was a believer, wrestled with the centrality of justice as he wrestled with God himself. Here's what he wrote. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, remember Darwin said it was senseless, it had no purpose. So if it was all bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world really was unjust not simply that I did not have, it didn't happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume one part of reality, namely my idea of justice was full of sense. But what is true justice and how do we get it? The prophet says that God requires this of us in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to do justly? The Bible has a great deal to say about this. Indeed, central to God's covenant with Abraham and with us is the condition of justice. He says, for I have known him. God says, I have known Abraham in order that he may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Proverbs 21.3 says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Moreover, Jesus warned in Matthew 23, woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And so God insists on his justice being satisfied, even if it means the death of his son, And so, too, must we take the issue of justice seriously. So faithful Christians are for true justice for every person. But it's not as easy as it might seem. At one level, we think of justice as right and wrong, true and false, fair and unfair. 
Yet there are several factors and obstacles that go into achieving justice. Our ignorance, prejudices, emotions, and agendas often pose the most serious threats. But as with other knowledge, comprehending justice begins, according to the Bible, with the fear of the Lord. In other words, remove God from the equation and there is no foundation left for justice. Proverbs 28.5 informs us, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. Moreover, we are warned in Leviticus 19, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And so the perfect law of God has justice as its goal. When people are prepared to ignore, twist, or otherwise abuse biblical law, the laws of justice, often in the name of justice, then the innocent are left unprotected. Biblical justice, that is, justice rendered by way of the law of God, is a great expression of love. It's the primary means of loving our neighbors as ourselves as we show respect for God and seek the good of our neighbors. We are called to self-consciously render justice, which does not allow us just to wing it. Therefore, Christians, we believe in justice. We call for justice. We must always be working for true justice. So what about this thing called social justice? Shouldn't we all pile on to the Black Lives Matter bandwagon and ride in the parade? Well, let's stop and see whether this parade is on the narrow way or the broad way. Because one leads to life, and the other leads to destruction. At this point, I'll be drawing heavily from Scott David Allen's excellent book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. In it, he refers to the current social justice movement as ideological social justice. Again, words like social justice. Who isn't for social justice? Well, I don't know. Let's find out what you mean by that. He calls for Christians to carefully discern between biblical justice and ideological or philosophical justice, uh, philosophical social justice. Both use the word justice, but each mean vastly different things by it. Because we are all created in the image of God, we live in God's world, and we have His law written in our hearts. Therefore, all of us crave justice, even those who have denied God and have asserted that we're only the products of material evolution, they still cannot escape their desire for justice. By the way, there is no such thing as good or evil or justice in Darwin's material world. It can't exist. Or as Madonna put it, you're just a material girl girl living in a material world. That's all you are. Since the authority of God's transcendent, universal, and authoritative law has been denied, they are left with a world that is compelled to create its own definition of justice, that is, Determining right and wrong for themselves. Sound familiar? Garden of Eden? 
Therefore, biblical justice and social justice have totally different origins, totally different authority, and totally different standards. And here's another warning from Scripture in Isaiah 5, 20-21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Of course, the man-created standards of justice are arbitrary and changeable according to the whims of those who have power and influence. Social justice warriors seek to tear down the biblical structures and systems since it is deemed by them to be oppressive, and they call for the redistribution of power and resources from oppressors to victims in pursuit of their equality of outcomes. This is neo-Marxism. Neo just means new. This is the new version of Marxism. Darwin's modernism claimed God and the spiritual realm. Uh, He eliminated them altogether. There is no God. There's no such thing as a spiritual realm. Redefining reality in material terms only. For modern man, science is the ultimate authority and final arbiter of truth. But remember, this left the world, uh, this left us with a world that was only matter in motion, but without purpose, and again, without justice. But another philosopher came to the rescue. Frederick Nietzsche gave us what would be called the Superman who would courageously impose his evolved will on this raw material reality. Chief Justice Anthony Kennedy described this new postmodern man as the source and definer of reality, and he suggested a new overarching human right. And here's what he said, the right to define one's own concept of existence of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, if you want to believe that, then believe that, but you're not a Christian. This is a stark choice. Which is it? Scott Allen observed that the old biblical worldview was discarded and was soon replaced. He said, German social theorist Karl Marx created a new narrative, a new worldview, a new religion, in fact, to replace the Judeo-Christian worldview as the West new cult or new religion. Marx's religion, he says, is based on modern atheistic assumptions but is nonetheless compatible with postmodern thought categories allowing these two worldviews to coexist quite happily in the post-Christian West. And so the cultural Marxists, you remember, began their long march through the institutions in the 1960s, and they have achieved overwhelming success at inculcating their uh, their presuppositions into Western public education, academia, the media, entertainment, big business, and politics. Marinell pointed this out to me yesterday, Republican Burgess Owens who just defeated Democrat Representative Ben McAdams in Utah, this was reported yesterday, made this comment. My generation has dropped the ball. 
We have allowed the socialist and Marxist to get into our school systems and teach our kids a different way than we were brought up. In today's society, our greatest enemy is socialist and Marxist to lay in wait and attack our most vulnerable. In this case, you have kids going to school fresh-eyed and excited about life and looking forward to a great future, but they come out anti-American Marxist. This philosophy has become the broad gate and the broad way. As a result, ideological social justice dominates our culture and is making major inroads into mainstream evangelicalism. It has become a religious successor to Christianity. Essayist Andrew Sullivan explains its appeal. He says, for many, especially the young, discovering a new meaning for life is thrilling. Social justice ideology does everything a religion should It offers an account of the whole, that human life and society must be seen entirely as a function of social power structures in which various groups have spent all human existence oppressing other groups, and it provides a set of principles to resist and reverse this interlocking web of of oppression. So now fighting for social justice is the new purpose for their lives. We see this in the oppressed groups intersecting to form coalitions to rise up against oppression. And then I ran across this. Here's an example of this logic from a man named Ashlyn Lusk, who is a 19-year-old mass communications sophomore from Houston, Texas. Here's how what he said. Now, he's talking... Probably you understand the primary oppressor group is white Christian men. I'm not saying, he says, men can't be oppressed, but it's not because they're men. Men of color can be oppressed because they aren't white. Men in the LGBTQ community can be oppressed because they aren't straight. White, straight, and cisgender men, cisgender is a person who actually is living out their physical, if, if you're born physically a male, then you're acting like a male. So, so white, straight, and cisgender men are put at a disadvantage, aren't put at a disadvantage just for being themselves. These men can be treated poorly, but not because of their race, sexuality, identity, or gender. People are put at more of a disadvantage if they are part of a more oppressed group. Black women are more oppressed than white women. And queer women are more oppressed than straight women. However, a black queer woman would be more oppressed than all of them. People are oppressed because they belong to a group who are oppressed. People are not oppressed individually. A lot of people are treated poorly, but that doesn't make them oppressed. The main part of oppression is that it is a group of people and not because of anything individually that the person has done. Now, he said a lot more than that, but that just gives you a sample. We are seeing many gullible young people being taken captive by this false philosophy from many churches. Now, remember, slogans are cheap substitutes for thought. 
Many see the slogan, for example, Black Lives Matter as a plea to secure justice for historically wronged African Americans. They add the BLM hashtag to their social media profiles, carry BLM signs at protests, and make financial donations. Tragically, when they donate, they're likely to be funding a number of radical organizations founded by committed Marxists. One of the BLM demands listed on their website says this, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another. We don't need your families. They're obsolete. You might remember that Hillary Clinton wrote a best-selling book titled It Takes a Village. This is the kind of village she had in mind. In the name of supporting BLM, many Christian young people justified voting for leaders in our last national election a couple of weeks ago who support abortion, which kills millions of black lives every year. Now, that is not just. Conclusion. Justice is an attribute of God. Without it, he couldn't be good. He hates evil and he punishes it. Injustice is a disruption of God's order for the world. Only justice can put the world back in order. This is true on a personal level and a cosmic level and everything in between. When justice is in place, there is goodness. When justice is perverted, there is misery and destruction. This is the broad gate and the broad way. Just judgments are God's means of restoring order in an unjust world. Moreover, justice is one of the key ways in which God demonstrates his love for us. The atonement of Christ was about satisfying God's perfect justice as he rescued unjust men. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. In other words, at the heart of the gospel is the goodness and justice of God. God's laws are good and just, including his instructions to us regarding the administration of justice among ourselves and our institutions. As children of God, we are called to be his imitators. His goodness is to be our goodness, and that will necessitate justice. We must be careful, Christians, to do genuine justice, careful for his sake, careful for our neighbor's sake, and careful for our own sake. This is one of the chief ways we love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. Deuteronomy 5, 32 and 33, Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that has gone mad. 
They've gone mad because they've sought to banish you and have presumed to be their own God, determining good and evil and justice for themselves. Many professing Christians have bought into this subtle deception and have traded biblical justice for a new ideological social justice which is contrary to your law. The broad way beckons and seeks to cheat us of the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to sound the alarm and to, be, and to equip us to recognize every false way. We pray with your servant David from Psalm 119. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors, but surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel sets forth the central place and importance of justice. The only just man who ever lived was unjustly crucified by a world gone mad. God's justice was satisfied in him and then proclaimed to the world. Isaiah had prophesied of Christ, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Entrusted with the gospel message, the church above all others must be a place where justice is done and seen. And the gospel goes forth, as the gospel goes forth, justice will be in its wake. We won't be dividing everybody up into groups. We'll be drawing together in Christ. Justice is ultimately about love, seeking the good of our neighbors. It's by this gospel that, uh, of love that the world will know that we are his disciples. Justice is indispensable. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne, according to Psalm 89. The new heavens and the new earth will be ruled with perfect justice. What a happy place. This newness, this justice has already begun in Christ. Do we now come to remember? We come to this table. And so let us love justice and thereby love him.